Welcome to this episode of After the Breach Podcast. We're your hosts, Jeff Friedman and Sarah Shimazu, and we've been wanting to introduce and do a deeper dive into the mammal-eating, bigs-killer whales we see here in the Salish Sea. Helping us do that is returning guest, Monica Whelan-Shields from the Orca Behavior Institute. There's a lot to talk about, and this will only be the beginning of it. We hope you enjoy it and can't wait to bring you even more whale-filled episodes from here our here on out. <laughs> We're rolling from San Juan Island, Friday Harbor, San Juan Island, Washington. You know, Jeff, it's just because we're recording this so early in the day and usually we're doing it at like 10 p.m. at night. Exactly. It's usually too late when we're recording it for me to make mistakes. <laughs> you don't make mistakes from 10 p.m. to like 11, 15. Exactly. PM. Exactly. All the rest of the day. Totally fair game. But we made it through. We're here. Uh, we have a great, great episode, a lot of really cool stuff to talk about, including uh, we'll talk about later in the episode. Uh, we have a special workshop coming up in September uh, that Sarah will be running, and there's some opportunities to sign up for that, to come yep. out on the water with us and do a photo workshop. But in the meantime, we want to do a deeper dive into the uh, marine mammal eating bigs killer whales that yeah. we see here. Very, very different from the southern resident killer whales that I think more people are familiar with. Um, I, I tell people a lot on, on the boat that the southern resident population, the fish-eating, uh, the endangered fish-eating killer whales, they're what really has been more well-known around the world. They have made connections with, with people, and people historically have come out here to see them. Uh, and about, I don't know, Monica, you you probably have more of the date range uh, nailed down than I do, but I would say in the last five to 10 years, we have seen a shift in who we see here. Um, and we do talk about that quite a bit in episode two, um, if, if anybody wants to go back and check that out. But let's talk a little bit to start off about some of the key differences in, in the two populations of killer whales that we see in the Salish Sea. Well, the primary difference between them is prey, right? Where we have one population that's eating marine mammals, the bigs killer whales, and then the fish eating southern resident killer whales. And a lot of the other differences that they have sort of stem from that difference in prey. It sort of impacts uh, how they socialize, how their family group structure works, um, how vocal they are, how active at the surface they are. So a lot of the behavioral differences between them really stem from the fact that they're eating different things. Yeah, and it's been really interesting kind of seeing this uh, difference between, well, not difference between them, but because that's always interesting, but like usage here, as you were saying, Jeff, um, that, you know, a, a lot of people are so familiar with the Southern residents that there are salmon eating um, specialists. And that's what we've kind of, you know, I don't want to say grown up on, but Monica, for you and I, we grew up on, on those whales. Right. Um, and it's kind of like there's a new generation now, you know, there's there's a lot of people out here that have never known the southern residents like we used to know them um and seeing an an quote unquote new population not new population but um you know this kind of formerly not as well known population returning and using this habitat is really interesting to see and highlight those key differences between them prey being the big one but uh how that kind of trickles down to everything else that they do well, and, and you pointed something out really valid, and it's really shared in, the, in this room with the three of us. Both of you have been out here much longer than I have, and we talked about this a little bit in episode two, that 
the Southern residents, when they do come back in here, the two of you spent a lot of time on the west side of the island uh, viewing them. And it's not that I don't go out there to, to see them, but I don't have that same, I, I don't know those whales. Um, I see them and I don't know the his, their stories and, and firsthand the way the two of you have, the, the way the two of you know them. But the big killer whales, it's like those, those are the whales I know. Those are the, the different matrilines, lines, the different groups. Those are the whales I, I know and, have, and feel a, a, a deep, not just a deeper connection, but a much broader understanding of who they are than the Southern residents because of the shift in, in presence. And, um, it would be great, um, to let's talk a little bit about that, that shifting presence in, in these waters. Um, Monica, you, you, and, and the Orca Behavior Institute have put together a lot of different numbers on, on the, the annual presence of, of both the Southern resident killer whales and the bigs, uh, for years. And uh, can, can you talk to us a little bit about what, what trends you've been seeing? Yeah, when I first started coming out here in the early 2000s, you know, the southern residents, at least one of the three pods, sometimes all three pods, would be here on a near daily basis from May through September. And the Biggs killer whales, which we called transients then, really fit their name of transients more because they would, they would pass through, they'd be here for a day or two, and they'd be gone, and then there might not be another group in the area for, for several weeks. And really, um, starting in 2013 was the year that it was extremely noticeable that we weren't having the Southern residents here um, to the you know the same extent that we were used to. And and since then, especially um, April, May, June uh, months when JPod used to be here almost consistently, they're now uh, much more absent. And it seems that the longer we go, the more that's extending later into the year, um, with July and August numbers dropping as well. And really, September has been the only month that has still been holding up where the Southern residents have been present like they used to be 20, 30 years ago. And we're seeing much different with the bigs. We're, we're seeing, I think, more, more sightings of more whales uh, and more balance throughout the year. I mean, seeing them 12 months. Right, absolutely. They used to have um, kind of a peak in their occurrence here um, in the spring and again in the late summer, sort of timed with the harbor seal pupping and the weaning of those pups. Um, but now there's very rarely a day when there aren't big killer whales somewhere in the Salish Sea that we know about. And often it's multiple groups of whales, you know, ranging from Puget Sound up to Campbell River um, out west in the Strait of Juan de Fuca. There are times when we have eight or nine different groups of big killer whales in the area. Um, and that's, you know, that, as you mentioned, has really changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Um, you know, 2013 was the year we first noticed the Southern residents not being here as much. I would say 2017 was kind of the wow year when the Biggs killer whales really upped their annual presence throughout the whole year. And that's just continued to rise since then. And we'll, we'll post in the show notes uh, some of the graphs that you've created on the number of days of presence for, for both populations one of the things that uh, that I tell people out on the water, uh, you know, people that are familiar or, or come out here and do some research and they talk about residents and transients, and those names made sense at the time based on the, the limited information that we had about those populations. But I tell people that in terms of descriptive 
of of who they are, they may as well have named them red and red orcas and blue orcas, uh, because the residents are not residents of the Salish Sea, uh, and people people hear that and they think that oh well, what about your local whales, the ones that are here all the time, and then the transients, well, that you know they just move through. And what's so interesting about what's happened here is that if those studies were done today, that it, they would be they would have inverse names. the The transients would be named the residents, and the residents would, would be the transients. Um, but those names are really don't serve them anymore, and I think they create confusion with with uh, people. Right. The names have kind of been around long enough that people are so used to calling them southern resident killer whales. Uh, transients is still really common, even though there's been you know the the movement to calling them Biggs killer whales in honor of um, Michael Big, who first identified them as a, as a separate population. But really, again, um, fish eating and mammal eating is the ultimate description um, to differentiate between the two, that you have the fish eating residents and you have the mammal eating Biggs killer whales, because that's really the main difference between them. And that is all culture. Uh, this is a cultural difference. Uh, this is what they are taught to eat. And it's not like they choose, hey, which, which clan do I want to be part of? Uh, this is all based on on mom to offspring, and there there are other cultural differences that we should highlight as well. It's not it, prey is definitely the main one, uh, but completely different vocals. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll play some uh, here for for people to listen and put some recordings in the in the show notes. Uh, but that's definitely one of the one of the key differences as well. Yeah, and I think a lo- you know a lot of people are getting more and more familiar with like these different types of killer whales all around the world. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about, about it with David about the Antarctic type killer whales, but um, the, the transient or bigs killer whales were kind of that first split from, from what became the rest of the killer whales and looking at kind of like some, uh, you know, genotypes, phenotypes, probably not using the right words there, but um, you know, estimated to have split off what four hundred thousand years ago from the rest of what would become the rest of the ecotypes of killer whales that we know at least now uh, throughout the world. Is that is that right? Two hundred fifty to four hundred thousand years ago, something like that. I think it's even higher for the big killer whales. I think it's like seven hundred fifty thousand years oh, ago. So right. they are one of the um, killer whale lineages worldwide that has separated from uh, the rest of you know, the species that we're still calling killer whales, they have sort of split off as a lineage um, the longest ago. And we sort of, we call killer whales, um, you know, a species complex because we have these different populations that we call ecotypes right now throughout the world that sort of specialize on feeding on different things and have these different cultures that we were talking about. But really, um, the big killer whales are probably one of the better candidates to receive species status. And really, even though they look you know, superficially similar, and they have that traditional black and white coloration that really um, everything about them from genetics to behavior um, to culture suggests that they are a different species of whale. I think one of the most interesting things for, for me in, in experiencing the, the, the big killer whales, especially right now uh, with what we're seeing in the, in the Salish Sea, because this population historically has been very, you know, Rare in these, not rare in these waters, but not frequently seen, uh, frequently documented, uh, spent more of their time offshore and in, in more northern areas where there's a much smaller population, certainly less whale watching. Um, and their numbers historically in, in recent history have not been as abundant as they are now. And this is a very, very 
big growing population, but they're now being seen much more. And it's fascinating to see the different culture from what we're used to with Southern residents to seeing a much different social dynamic with Biggs killer whales. So you would say there's a big, bigs population. A, a big, bigs population. Well, let's 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 back up for a second and talk about the different. So we have 75 southern resident killer whales uh, listed as endangered on the, under the Endangered Species Act, and uh, you know they they face a big challenge with with food, and and we hear a lot of you know the orcas are dying, our whales are dying, and the bigs population. It, I, I'd like to describe them. They're, they're arguably the fastest growing population of killer whales on this planet. At least that we know of and are keeping we, track of. Exactly. Right? exactly. I mean, they're, they're, they're in a huge baby boom that's, that's been going on for 10 years. Their calf survival rate is off the charts. Yeah, I think it was over a 90% fecundity last, you know, last talk I heard, which has been a few years ago. But um, yeah, I mean, crazy. The Got to give a, a shout out to the you know hard work of Jared Towers and and some of his colleagues for doing the the catalog in 2019 released that and he's been releasing um, subsequent population updates and in the last one uh, this is a quote from that and it says at the end of 2018 uh, the subset of the population most often found in coastal waters totaled 349 individuals um, and, and had grown at an average rate of 4.1 percent per year since 2012. And that, that is continuing that, that level of, of growth. And we're seeing, I mean, we see that firsthand. We're seeing so many families with new calves um, and young, young females having calves. Uh, it is just, it's a, it shows what that difference highlighted by what they're eating. Yeah, we really came into the story of these two populations of killer whales at really different points. When, when studies really began in earnest in the 1970s, the Biggs killer whales had kind of already experienced a dramatic prey decline. Um, you know, before the Marine Mammal Protection Act came into place, there was for a while a bounty on harbor seals in the region. There was a lot of fisheries bycatch of the small marine mammals that, that they feed on. And I think their population had probably declined or at least was failing to grow because of that. And after the Marine Mammal Protection Act has come into place, we've seen this incredible rebound of uh, pinniped and porpoise populations, which is why their population has been able to grow. And on the flip side of the coin, you know, the, the southern residents in the 70s had just been subjected to the live captures. And so they had some population depression from that as well. But it's really, um, you know, salmon numbers even then had had declined dramatically from historic numbers. But it's in the more recent decades that they've really crashed, um, especially on the Fraser River, looking, looking specifically at the spring Chinook runs and some of the Colombian snake spring runs. And without that population rebound of the prey that they rely on, um, their, their population is kind of flatlined and is holding there in sort of the mid seventies. And it's, it's going to take that type of protection and that type of, um, conservation effort that it, you know, that we put into place for marine mammals in the seventies, we need to do similar, uh, take similar actions to recover salmon and let salmon abundance, um, grow back to, you know, at least recent historic levels and, uh, give the Southern residents a chance to experience that same type of population growth. We're definitely going to do a, a deep dive into the Southern res resident and salmon issue for sure in one of these episodes. Uh, and it's a great point that you're hitting uh, that we're seeing what is possible with killer whale populations when their food recovers and 
they're able to grow their population. I mean, it's, it's not rocket science. When, when you have mammals that are well-fed, they successfully procreate. I mean, that, that, that is what happens. And what we've seen um, in, in these recent studies and, and whale watching and, and seeing them, uh, I want to talk about some of the cultural differences because we see southern residents and they're kind of set in, in the pattern in terms of when we, like when we see J-Pod come in, you pretty much almost not, you know, nothing is ever absolute, especially in nature. But most of the times that you see J-Pod, you see it's all of J-Pod. They're, they come in together. Um, if there is a one whale missing, you're, you're worried. Um, you know, L's travel in, in their set, set groups. Uh, you know, K-Pod is ge- not always, but generally together. And, you know, you, you kind of know what to expect when you see them. With the bigs, it's all those rules are, are off. We see match lines to, all together, and then we see them, we'll, we'll see dispersals of one or several offspring. Uh, sometimes it's, it's long-lasting or the, the only way we see it, and other times kids come and go, and then they form these associations with whales that we know, like they've known them their whole lives. Uh, we just saw that when we had two 15-year-old boys from two different families traveling together uh, for, uh, I think it was almost a couple of weeks. And those two 15-year-old males come from two families that we have seen over the years associating with each other quite often. And so we know it's, it's not like they were strangers. Like they've known each other since they were little kids. Um, and it's, it's fascinating that it's this much looser set of, of rules. I mean, there are, there are cultural dynamics here at play. It's not like it's, uh, you know, nothing, it's not like no, nothing, no rules or no culture. Um, but we're just starting to understand it and see it because we've never viewed these animals so much before. And they've never been seen this much that we're, we're getting a really interesting window into their culture. Yeah. And I think it's important too, as we're making these observations, like we're, we're limited to by the scope of our, our range. Like we have a lot of eyes here in the southern, you know, southern Vancouver Island area, um, and there's still a huge swath of the their their range that we we don't see them. So who knows what they get up to in those other parts? We know we have more and more eyes up in those those other parts. But um, man, what I wouldn't give to know more about them. But as as you mentioned, Jeff, there's just so much, um, you know, kind of how their prey has affected their social structures. And I, I think Monica, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, you know, historically we were seeing bigs killer whales in, in small groups, three animals was pretty common. Five was kind of a, a larger group. Um, and now it's kind of expanded from there. We're seeing, you know, average um, group size has kind of increased and we've seen some huge aggregations of, of big killer whales, but I know um when you know when we have people come out they're like oh a pot of orcas you know they're looking at big killer whales and they're talking about a pot of orcas well it's a matriline and and uh it's not the same social structure as the southern resident killer whales there's not like a a, a set pod um so that's really fascinating just to look at how that kind of comes into play yeah just a note on that nomenclature like the word pod really came from studying the southern residents and the original definition was sort of a group of matrilines probably related matrilines that spend more than 50% of their time together and that's how we came up with with j pod you know well over 50% of the time all these matrilines are are traveling together 
But really the, the key unit um, for the big killer whales is the matriline. And when we say matriline, we're meaning a female and her descendants. And that can become much more complicated once her daughters start having offspring of their own. And we see all kinds of crazy splitting where we have the mother with her daughter and you know her her grand offspring but then sometimes they split off and then sometimes some of the other sub-adult you know split off like you were saying so it becomes um much more fascinating to track in terms of socially what's going on but also a lot more complicated where you can't you know you can't make any of those assumptions anyway but it's easier to i think with the southern residents to say oh i've i've seen members of all j-pod matrilines so i think all of j-pod is here right but with the southern residents if you see t65a there's no way you can assume that all the t65a's are, are going to be there especially right now especially yes. right now we have so the 65a's are uh, a matriline and but r- like right now, we have a few of them are down in Olympia, and they've been down there for two weeks down in this inlet near near Olympia. Um, but mom and uh, a, a few of her offspring, they they have split. We haven't seen them in a few days, but they're up north somewhere. Um, and then sixty five A's mom and brother spend quite a bit of their time up in Alaska, and. The southern residents are much easier to understand their culture because they have well. these co- <laughs> well they have these co- they have these co- they have these cohesive groups that generally aren't aren't splitting from each other and with the bigs you'll there are times we will will be just getting dialed in on a group of bigs and it's like wait who 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 all is here yeah yeah and I think like we you know. We, we're just scratching the surface, like of tip of the iceberg, so to speak, of un- our understanding of these social structures. So, like what we might think uh, is abnormal or normal or what have you for bigs, certainly, but for potentially southern residents as well or any other ecotype of orca, um, you know, I I think we're just you know playing off our own kind of interpretations of their behavior. Um, but but generally speaking, yes, I, I you know. Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the fun things about no. It's all the best this thing. is is trying to interpret what's going on. I mean, one, Monica, you mentioned uh, dispersal when when daughters start having their offspring. I think we've also noticed, and this would be a fascinating uh, study to do. We've noticed uh, male uh, offspring dispersing uh, when, and we've come to later find out that mom was pregnant. And then after the offspring, is, the new offspring is born, the male is back with the family. And there, there's just, there's so much we don't know. And so much of the fun is, is trying to come up with, with whale theory on, <laughs> on what's going on. Right. Yeah. We spend a lot of time doing that where it's total speculation, but how can you not when you're seeing these interesting dynamics? You know, Sarah and I have talked about some of those older males when, when mom's about to have a brand new infant and they're just like, oh, another, you know, another noisy calf and I'm going to go, you know, have some alone time for a little while before, before it gets a little bit older or whatever it is. But there are these patterns that we see and it's something that we're, we're at least documenting right now, um, you know, with the aid of the Pacific Whale Watch Association and Orca Network and all these groups that help track throughout the region, um, which whales are where. And by recording that data, we're hoping, you know, longer term, we can look in greater detail at some of these dispersal patterns and see are there trends that carry across different matrilines and, and potentially the whole population? Or is it really, 
an individual choice where there isn't a driving factor of, you know, group size or group composition that leads to dispersal? Is it just up to the whales with what, you know, each individual wants to do? Or are there some underlying patterns there? Yeah, and I think it's been fascinating. I know, Monica, you and I were talking about this when 124A4 recently left uh, mom with her her young one. And I just think it's so fascinating because it doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's the same criteria so to speak like there's not the same reason for a whale dispersing from mom and it's easy for us to like prior to assume that you know oh it's because she has has her own calf and it's um easier to hunt prey that are you know smarter than fish um are are more you know aware than fish um and so it, it benefits being in a smaller group and that's probably true um, but it definitely seems like there's potential for more and unique um, reasoning for, for dispersing. Yeah, well, it's at least here in the Salish Sea where the pinnipeds are so abundant, the group size seems to be less necessary, right? Like we see these larger groups like you were mentioning, and they're still clearly successfully foraging. Um, so it's more than just hunting efficiency that's driving dispersal. Um, it, with a family group like the 65As, you know, they used to be a more cohesive unit. And then one kid started wandering and then another kid started wandering. And it's almost like um, they're uh, picking it up from a sibling. And, oh, they got to go off for a while. I'm going to go off for a while and, and see what's going on. Yeah. And, and I think at least so for one, me, one I of the other things this um, with the 65As I mean, is, is that uh, it, it really they, they seemed to happen after 65A6 was born grandkids yet but some of the females that disperse once they have their own kids uh, this could be a cultural difference with the southern residents with the southern residents we know there's a lot of grandmother involvement in in raising offspring and the bigs could be a little bit different in that you know the females are like hey these are these are my kids I've got this I'm raising them I don't want my mom living in the same house with me and my kids I'm I'm raising them on my own yeah, and but and at the same time we have, you know, we see that a lot. And then there's like the kind of obvious exception of the T thirty four, thirty seven, thirty seven B group too, where um, we we have kind of these multi generational family that is pretty tight. I think usually there's been a couple of instances where we've seen them separate, but not for long. Not, and not, ma- for not very many. Far. That family that's multi generation with four generations. Yeah. Um, all, almost always. You know, it, right. Almost, not 100% sure. Almost always together. But there, there is, I guess, one of the big takeaways is a difference that I see in the two populations is the bigs, there, there's more variation. There's more what, what it, it's probably, but look, nothing is accidental with these whales. Everything is intentional that they do. There seems to be more of a range of individual choice in how they live their lives. More fluid. More fluid. Well, even with the dispersal, some whales disperse for shorter periods of time and go back to, to the family. Some whales seem to disperse for longer periods of time, but still go back. And let's talk about 77A. <laughs> you were reading and, my mind. <laughs> and some whales disperse and never go back, even when they're in proximity to their mom and siblings, seem to not go back at all. Yeah, and I wasn't out that day. Um, I, I know Davin was, uh, who joined us as a guest, but... Dave, uh, Jeff, were you out um, the day? I think it was up in the Strait of Georgia, and it was like the 77s. I think the 65As were there. In fact, they were there. There was a big group. It was a big aggregation of big killer whales. And 77A was coming down towards them, 
And from what I remember, Damon telling me, got within about 600 yards of the main group, and 65A2 actually went out to meet him, and then he never joined he never up joined with the up. group. So let's back up. T-77A is um, an adult male. Uh, he is a killer whale that we would call an independent whale, uh, an independent male. He, he travels mostly on his own. He does join other groups. Uh, sometimes he joins up with other independent males. Uh, but he has, I mean, it's funny if somebody mentions the T-77s to me, I don't even think about him as, as being, if they're like, oh yeah, we saw the 77s. I would never ask was, was 77A there. I think of him, he is completely off on his own. And it seems like there's an individual choice that, that he has made that, you know, he, he liked, he dispersed at some point and decided he liked he liked being on the road on his own. And See, I'm, I'm not convinced it's an individual choice. Or is it mom's um, It might be out. mom's choice. Yeah. That, like that, that, is a, that is a valid theory. Yeah. There's there's a lot more fluidity in their dispersal for sure in the bigs compared to the southern residents. But I have a feeling they still have these, you know, social norms that, that govern um, what's happening. And it may not be uh, individuals choosing their lifestyles. It's I wouldn't be at all surprised if we one day figure out that it's still mom calling the shots. Right. I was I was trying to to allude to social norms earlier and <laughs> and you did it much more eloquently than I than I but you're probably you know I like to think of it from the the male perspective <laughs> but in a in a a culture that is dominated by females most you know mom you're probably more right than than I am on on it being a social norms and mom saying you got to go. As I, I remember David describing that encounter with this with 77A as well. And he was moving quite quickly towards the group, yeah, right? And yeah. like I would assume from from the description that he wanted to meet up with that group, which included his mother and and 65A2 was sort of, you know, potentially sent out to say, Hey, you know not today. Nice to see you, but you're not welcome. You're, here. you're still in timeout. <laughs> Forever timeout. I always kind of joke that um, you know, the 77s all have very clean fins with the exception of 77a so i just kind of joke around like maybe he went out got some notches in his fin and mom was like absolutely not it's like getting a tattoo for some families or maybe not maybe allowed. he's not allowed to come back until he stops playing with crab pots well and we know that's <laughs> not gonna happen so <laughs> but it was interesting because when i you know not when I first started out here, but, you know, when I was out on the water a lot more um, many years ago, 77A, you know, when I heard he was in the area, I almost always thought, oh, 49C was with him. They were the twins. They were, you know, they have that double notch right in the middle of their fin. And for a couple of years, like it was like if 77A was there, 49C was with him. Like the two traveled together, unrelated males but those are those are the, the two whales I have on my kitchen wall. Those oh, right. Are, right. That's 77A and 49 C. And now they've split. Yeah. Um, you know, years and years ago. And I, I don't know that they've been seen together since then, but um, it's just interesting. All these social fluid social structures and, and that, I don't know, I'm just fascinated. And well, that's what I was driving at was that it's so much more fluid than the Southern residents, yet there are social norms that must be at play. And we're, we're trying to catch up and figure out what those social norms are. And I think every time we think we might have a handle on, on something, then, you know, something, something, we see something that wasn't expected. 
uh, like this recent split in the 65 A's. And it's like, huh, what's that about? That kind of, that holds up across killer whales in general, that as soon as we, you know, think we figured something out, there's an exception to the rule. And that just speaks to how complex their society is. Absolutely. It's one of the things I really love about, you know, about them. Yeah, you you never know what you're going to see, right? And for the Southern residents, we have this sort of shared history of 40 plus years of of what we've seen. And Jeff, you mentioned earlier, people newer on the scene have spent a lot more time with the Biggs killer whales and maybe are starting to know the individuals and families a lot better. But really, it's, you know, in the last 10 years that we've had this opportunity to get to know them a lot more. And they're still, we're kind of in the infancy of our observations of them to that level where we, we don't have as good of a sense of what's normal or not normal because these things may have been going on, you know, prior to that, but we just didn't get to see them enough to document that young, young calves, you know, may disperse from their family group or, or whatever A1. it is. Yeah. Yeah. And we've, we've talked about the saga of 34 a one, uh, on, on multiple episodes. Uh, and that, and that is an ongoing saga. Uh, haven't seen 34 a one in a little while, but, uh, see, uh, see where, where we get the next sighting. Uh, something else that might be at play here too is, that these social norms are coming in, new social norms are coming into play as, as we're getting a bigger population, as these family sizes are bigger than they were when studies first started. I mean, certainly there is an element of this that they're being seen a lot more. So we're seeing more of, of this and getting to know them. But I would think that there are probably different social norms at play as their population gets, gets larger, just as we've seen uh, different social norms with the southern residents as their their prey has become less abundant and as their their size uh, population size has decreased. Absolutely, thinking about the growing bigs population, you know, if you have multiple whales within one family group that are giving birth every couple of years, that's going to change how you associate with one another. You know, if you mom has a has a calf and one daughter has a calf and another daughter might be pregnant, that's going to be a consideration for them, I imagine. In in how they associate and with who. And and there are social norms and there's a lot of intention. I mean, I, I always say nothing, nothing is just random. These are v- very, very intelligent animals with deep culture. Um, and uh, just, we see a, an abundance of examples of, of their intelligence and in, intention when we're out on the water uh, viewing them. Yeah, I mean, we've all had those kind of crazy and I want to say eye-opening encounters with, well, both types, but with the biggest killer whales, since we're talking about them specifically, um, that just kind of leave you shaking your head or or shift your whole understanding of killer whales in a way you weren't expecting when you woke up that morning. And um, yeah, it's it's a constant, you know, roller coaster ride almost. I have... I- I mean, just saying that two stories pop into my head right off off the bat. One, um, I don't know if this is 2017 or 2018, uh, but uh, T49A1 had been dispersed. He was um, uh, in his late teens, I believe, and firstborn adult male uh, to T49A, and he had dispersed in, I believe it was like November. Uh, he left his mom and siblings and he was seen traveling with his aunt 
uh, T49B and her offspring. Mm-hmm. And he returned back to mom and his siblings. I think it was in March. Yeah, 2018. It was either late March or the very beginning of April. And that was when was it T49A5 had just been born. She, yeah, she had been born the previous late 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 in the year in 2017. And um, it was his first documented day back it, with with the family, and we did um, two consecutive trips with them. And uh, T49A2, his younger brother, was all over him mm-hmm. the entire day, just rolling and rolling and rolling. And they were breaching together, and it was it was you know what we would interpret clearly as a coming back together, uh, family reunion, um, and that definitely uh, definitely shows something. The other story that I that comes to mind is something we saw last week uh, with with the thirty seven A's, and one of the most dramatic examples of their intelligence that I've ever seen. And this was, this was like right out of a national geographic documentary. Um, and Sarah, you were there with me mm-hmm. and the 37 A's were hunting. Uh, they were searching for Harbor seals, uh, down on this, uh, wildlife, uh, refuge Island, uh, protection Island. And they were, they were, uh, traveling along the beach where there were probably several hundred harbor seals oh, yeah. hauled yeah. out on the beach. And the beach comes to this point at the very ed- edge of the island, and they had several members of the family patrolling and, and traveling along the beach in the real shallow water. I mean, they were right up against the shoreline, yeah. and they were f- the seals were freaking out, the seals that were hauled out on the beach. Um, you know, You'd think that they they would know that they were safe on shore, uh, but they were really, really freaking out. Um, And so what we saw was this stampede of seals going up further up the beach to get as over the top of the point over the top of the the water on the other side where the rest of the family of killer whales was waiting for them. Well, yeah, because those two were patrolling. It was mom and I think it was 37A2. And then as they did that and flushed these seals, stampede of seals, legitimately, it was crazy. Um, another one of them was at the point, and actually spy hopped, Jeff. I don't know if you saw oh, that. I, spy I, hopped I at the point. Didn't get it on film, but I... No, I know. I didn't get a photo either. And then you could see the blows from the other two kind of out in the shallows where these uh, seals were heading. Uh, it was it was pretty... pretty in- Incredible. I I haven't looked yet. I do have some video. It's not of the stampede or or this the the climactic moment when we're like, oh my god, they're going it over the point into the water and the other whales are there. But I do have some video of them traveling really close to shore uh, that we can post uh, links to in the show notes. But those those two different examples, the forty nine A one coming back to mom and and siblings after. 49A5 was born and then and this hunt and how are they finding each other like how did 49A1 know where and when I mean that's something that leaves me scratching my head a lot with with both populations really but we've been seeing it with the the big killer whales you know you mentioned the two 15 year old boys that had uh, been wandering around together a 65A3 and T49A2 and when T65A3 split off from the rest of the T65As, he went 
and made a beeline for where T49A2 was, you know, maybe a hundred miles away. Like, I don't think that was a coincidence that right. he went and straight there. Straight there, no, no line of sight. So you can't, not that they would see, but like no acoustic, but acoustic contact, acoustic, yeah. right? No, no way to get acoustic contact unless they figured out how to, how to bounce things off different, different walls under, underwater. And we see the same thing when those reunions happen, like you mentioned with the T49As. I, I don't think, you know, from what we've seen, it doesn't seem like they're just randomly stumbling into one another that they, I don't know if they're scheduling things in advance or if they hear an update somehow on where somebody is, but the, the reunions after splitting are just as interesting as the splits themselves. It's, it is probably the most fascinating thing, I think, in my mind of how their culture works because the, you're talking about vast distances and you're, you're talking about a range from Northern California to Southeast Alaska and these inland waters. There's way too much water for them. If it was random, they'd never see each other again. Yeah, just thinking of the maps that they must have, right? If you think of every cove and inlet and island, like sometimes when they split and go around a point, like you mentioned, to corral a seal or something, it's like just the the cultural knowledge of we can split here. This is an island, not a bay. And I mean, think of the number of islands that are in their range and they seem to know when when that tactic will work and when it won't. And it's just got to be an incredible memory, geographic memory that they have. And, and to them, they're probably like, it's no big deal. It's this is this. It's like us knowing every little corner of our house. Yeah. I'll meet you in the basement. And we'll- <laughs> <laughs> That's a little creepy. I know, I know. I had to make it creepy. <laughs> Awkward pause. Thinking about the basement comment. Sorry about that. Um, well, I think it goes without saying that, you know, if we're talking about a- any whales that we're talking about, we do need to address kind of like what we as humans can do uh, to not either impede their, um, you know, population growth and, and potential or help recover them in the case of the southern residents. And we talk a lot about salmon and we're going to talk more about salmon um, but for these guys, mammals, that's the thing. And there's been some pretty, I, I don't want to say murmurings, because it's been pretty blatant, I think, uh, call for more pinniped calls in the last couple of years. And, you know, we're, I think we're all in, on that side of like, no, you know, we don't need, we don't need to do any more pinniped calls. That is a thing of the past. We have a perfectly capable natural predator that's going to be taking care of restoring that balance. Well, and, and just to bring people up to speed on the pinniped calls, one of the, um, there, there are murmurings and, and so pinnipeds are eating salmon. Um, and some people feel that one of the, the tools for salmon recovery uh, would be to call the number of pinnipeds, uh, seals and sea lions, and that would help in, in salmon recovery, which would help the southern resident killer whales. It would help fishermen. Uh, I think what, what Sarah is talking about is something that we feel that uh, there is a pinniped call going on right now, and it is the big killer whales. And uh, we've seen countless examples of when humans step out of the way uh, and let nature, it takes some time, but let nat- the natural world uh, do its thing. And there will, will be a balance in, in the big killer whale population and the pinniped population. Uh, and I know Monica, you've you've looked into some of this. Um, it's kind of a misconception that 
that pinnipeds are all they're eating is salmon. Right. It is, it is a complicated issue, but in general, um, pinnipeds are generalists where they, they eat salmon, but they also eat other fish that are salmonid predators. So they are help, you know, they could be helping salmon in some ways by, by eating a lot of fish that would otherwise eat juvenile salmon. Um, when, when the call is for a region-wide call to dramatically reduce the entire population of seals or sea lions, that's really what, what I take concern with. I think it's, one, it's extremely impractical and probably, you know, undoubtedly very inhumane as well. Um, and when we're talking about that sort of regional-wide population control, um, that's where the bigs killer whales will do the job. Um, but it is, uh, like I said, I do want to give a nod to the specific areas where there are pinnipeds that have become specialists, um, like on the dams in the Columbia River, where you have a small number of individuals that are targeting salmon at a bottleneck point. And those animals can have a real impact on very specific localized salmon runs. And so um, it's, you know, it's never black and white. So there are there are studies that show that there are specific salmon runs and specific pinniped populations where there might be a real problem. And in a lot of cases, these are aided by human impacts like the creation of a dam where there, where there wasn't before. But um, when we have these endangered salmon runs that are on life support, I think um, people are looking at all options of, of what can be done to help recover them. And in specific cases, um, the impacts of pinnipeds are, are worth talking about. But when we're talking about region-wide salmon recovery and region-wide Pinniped populations, um, I think it's it's unrealistic uh, to talk about human population control of seals and sea lions. And I think with this thriving big killer whale population, we will see sooner or later that they will be the check and balance on on that overall population size. Uh, I I have heard several mentions and in, in having specific areas that can be problematic with pinnipeds with with salmon where they do become specialists. Um, and you know, it, it is a complicated issue because one of, one of the, one of the tools that we have in our toolbox is removing that bottleneck. If we remove the dam, I don't think we're going to have that same issue with pinnipeds being specialists in that area. We're going to have a free, free flowing river. I don't think we're gonna have the same bottleneck of, of, of population of pinnipeds hanging out at the bottom of the dam. Right, and there, but the, there are going to be, you know, unfortunately, some dams that will never be removed, at least not in our lifetime. Um, you know, hopefully, some that will very soon be looked at as far as breaching goes or, or dam removal goes. Um, so we, we do need to look at that. Um, and and you're right, Monica. I I kind of use that pinniped call generally, but that's what I'm talking about—a a region-wide kind of call of of pinnipeds. And when looking at specialized populations um some of the science that's looked at the impacts of like specific harbor seals on salmon returns have been for rivers in puget sound where we end up with seals kind of going up the river and right and feeding on fish and that's why some of the things like what the t65as are doing right now where they're spending all this time you know weeks deep in southern puget mm-hmm. sound it's like at some point might they might they become specialists of these specialist pinnipeds right, right. where they find that there's um a a small population that's hanging out in a specific area that's really reliable to feed on. It'll be interesting, you know, over time to continue looking at the overlap of Biggs killer whales and these, you know, so-called problem pinniped hotspots as well. And we do see some killer whales going 
well up into rivers. Um, not not a lot, but definitely off the Oregon coast, at least. There's at least a couple times a year where we see them, you know, going up into these, you know, river mouths at least, and sometimes miles and miles up, up river. Yeah, like um, the Yaquina River... Just a couple months ago, some teas right. went five or seven miles up that river. And one that, you know, people ask me about a lot is in Astoria, the mouth of the Columbia River, where there's, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, of sea lions there. And why don't we see more killer whales in that area? And I almost wonder if they might not be outnumbered. Like, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, for a sea lion, they often want to get it on its own. And if right. there's a thousand sea lions in the water there, that's not going to be a hot spot to feed because there's there's too many even for them. Right. And Jeff, we've seen that like at Greenpoint on Spiden Island. Um, you know, we've seen small groups of bigs go to Greenpoint when the sea lions are there and the sea lions mob them. Yeah, they, they jump and in they the water and they push they, them out of the they, area. They chase them away. And it is fascinating because you're, you're right. If they can't, they've got to get one separated from the group. And we've seen it where we have a group of, uh, you know, five dozen sea lions jumping in the water uh roaring at, at the killer whales and the killer whales are like yeah whatever we'll go to another area we'll find a seal around the corner and they're leaving and the sea lions for a good mile or so are swimming after the killer whales yeah yeah and stay out <laughs> get yeah. out of here yeah. and stay out <laughs> yeah <It's>, don't <laughs> come back yeah <laughs> all right well um we can talk about some of our recent sightings, although yeah. we've, we've, you know, we, we told the story about the 37 A's, but we are seeing lots of other, uh, big killer whale families. Monica, you, you came over here to record straight off the water from, uh, an encounter this morning. Yeah. Just right outside of Friday Harbor. Yeah. We were, uh, we were going to meet for brunch and I, you know, all plans are whale dependent in, are. in this, in this time of year. So yeah, there, uh, T75Bs were just right outside Friday Harbor. So we hopped out there and we haven't seen those guys in a while. Um, and it's, you know, as many eyes as we have on the water in general, especially in the summer here, there's still, it's amazing how families can just kind of appear and disappear and we don't necessarily know where they came from or they're not always seen, you know, coming into or leaving the area. They can just kind of appear all of a sudden 75 bees are right. in Friday Harbor. Right. And sometimes in the morning and sometimes in the middle of the day, sometimes late in the day. And we're like, where have you guys been? Um, and I think, you know, it probably is great reminder for us to not you know assume that that uh it's necessarily the same family we saw the night before just because they were there you know so these whales can move so fast and so far right right we had a group of of i think eight whales last night from the 124a's uh were seen yesterday afternoon yesterday evening and no sightings today yeah where are they right and that's, that's something that is also very different from the Southern residents, like especially in the spring, summer, and fall, I think we're, we pretty much know for certain when they're here or when they're not here. And because they travel in such, you know, generally larger groups, they're so vocal, they're so surface active. It's hard for 25 whales in J-Pod to go missed if they're passing past, you know, Victoria or up the west side of San Juan Island. But with the big killer whales, that's not the case at all. Like you said, sometimes groups of eight or 10 will be picked up just before sunset. And it's not that people haven't been out there, but they're... Right, they'll be pick picked up right in front of Friday Harbor. I mean, we've, we've found whales coming back into the harbor on the last trip of the day. We found another group of whales right out front. And it's like, where, how were they missed all day? Right, well, that time that we had a no whale trip and came back and the 49As followed us into the harbor or what, well, you know, escorted us back to the slip. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's uh so and then we've had the so recently we mentioned and we should post a map in the show notes to show where the some of the 65As and 77s have been uh, all the way down in uh, pretty much as far south into Puget Sound as you can go. Yeah, such narrow inlets down there. They're almost like rivers, right? Mm-hmm. Like I, it's bucket list for me to see whales down there and, and in yeah. some of those little inlets. It just looks amazing. And then the rest of the 65As, uh, we, we saw for a little bit and then and then just just vanished. Well, Monica, you had a report of them up north. Is that right? Mom and A3 and A6? Yeah, so T65A, T65A3, and T65A6 were seen going up the Strait of Georgia, and they passed Campbell River a couple days ago. So wow. they, they left the Salish Sea, uh, while T65A2 and T65A4 are still down in, in southern Puget Sound, and T65A5 is MIA. Yeah, and we've we've talked about him on on some of the episodes, uh, and uh, he's got his own little little saga. We haven't seen him. I'm guessing my my money is that he's going to show up in the next uh, week or so with the T18s. <laughs> well, he has before. Uh, I don't know when. I you guys all have your bets going on when the T18s are going to show I, up. I lost but, already. Oh, did you? Okay, well, I and still so did have, David. I still have, I think, nine nine or ten days to go. So. So lot, lots of families coming and going. Uh, interesting that the 65As, uh, the mom and, and two kids are uh, past Campbell River up north. And so we're talking about a separation, a split in this family, a separation somewhere around 400 miles, I think. At least. You know, if they were passing Campbell River a few days ago, gosh, they could be far. <laughs> right. And that goes back to the early earlier point because at some point, they're going to show up and they're all going to be together. And that's 400 miles. You can't just get back together uh, just by running into each other randomly. That would never happen. Yeah. Well, I think like, you know, I, I say this a lot and uh, people that have been on the water with me um, have maybe heard me say this, but it's like, there's no, I, I don't feel like there's an overall like population trend like oh we're gonna spend spring up north and we're gonna spend the winter down near california it's like but there are trends in individual matrilines like the 65 a's you know shows up the first week of april though she was a little early this year but you know almost without fail the first week of april she's showing up in puget sound uh and then she's here you know off and on but through august and into september and then where is she in the winter though she I guess was here in October, November. Yeah, last I mean, we year have these trends, but then they're always changing. I know, and they yeah. always they always make me a liar. But um, you know, we do see trends within families um, of these whales. The, and yeah, we do see trends, and the trends are always yeah. open to that. Open we to that we interpret right yeah. might not be actual, but yeah. well, sometimes it's uncanny. It's like the same day. Mm-hmm. in consecutive years where a specific family group will show up or certainly the same week, like you said. and In the same place. Yeah, and for even if that holds up for five years, that's just that's still mind-blowing to me. That yeah. T65As are going to be in Puget Sound first week of April, <laughs> year after year. Like Again, they're not just mapping geographically. They're, they're keeping track of things temporally as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, they, they clearly have uh, an understanding of, of time. I don't know whether it's the... Like the the tidal fluctuations, the sun hours of daylight, but they 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 clearly have a calendar that that works in in their world 
for their understanding of the passage of, of time. And they must be utilizing that with these reunions, right? Like I really think some of these must be planned where I'm going to meet you back, you know, in Puget Sound in three weeks or, I, or whatever yeah. it is. I completely agree. I mean, I think they have a very solid understanding of, of, you know, when the sun comes up, when it goes down and the differences in tides with the, the lunar phase. And they, they have a very good map of time and we know they have an incredible map of place. And so I, I, I agree. I think there's no other way. It may not be pinpointed down to, you know, I'll meet you at three o'clock on the 25th of July, but it, it could be, we'll meet you in this area um, around th- this time. Mm-hmm. And what adds another layer of mystery to this is so often when these groups are meeting up, it's quiet. So they're not Mm -hmm. using acoustics to find one another specifically, even when they're in closer range. And same thing when they're splitting off. It's not like the last thing, you know, mom's telling the kid is, remember, this is where and when and where we're going to meet. It's like these can be silent splits and reunions in terms of in the immediate moment. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fascinating to me. And actually, that kind of brings uh, like segue into this. Uh, encounter that we had the other night, Jeff, you, well, we were on different boats, but the T69s and the T2Cs, um, you know, were picked again, picked up late in the day, um, you know, but eight whales and we were on scene and the T2Cs were ahead, ahead of the T69s by about a hundred yards. And the two groups never met up for like 45 minutes to an hour that I was on scene. Um, and you got on scene and, there was kind of a fascinating little thing. Like they uh, went on a deep dive, like seven minutes, I think was the longest dive we'd seen so far. And then they came up um, in a line, like I've seen the Southern residents do. Uh, each of them were in a line. They were facing each other. They swam together. And as they got together, they dove. That but was, it was so cool. But it was see. quiet. There was, was nothing totally, on the totally hydrophone. Nothing on the hydrophone. Just to back up. So the, the T2Cs are a very storied family. Um, that uh, go go all the way back to the beginning of the, of the studies and and back to the capture era actually, and the T sixty nines when um, I think I may have been texting you or on the radio with Dave and when the IDs were figured out that it was the T sixty nines. My reaction was who, who? I, I that never seen them, never heard of them. Uh, really, really amazing, and that. That happens here. T69C, impressive dorsal fin, disappointing eye patch. I think that's what Dave said on the radio <laughs> last year. Very small eye patch, but very big dorsal fin. Well, you yeah. know, can't have it all. <laughs> but that, yeah, that was an incredible encounter. And yeah, obviously there were things going on, but it was all, there were no vocals. Um, and then you guys left and they were, they were both kind of in a resting line, a resting pattern doing long dives. And then all of a sudden, and this this is what another thing that's so amazing, all of a sudden, with no vocals or who knows how they're communicating, every single one of them started porpoising at high speed to the north. Uh, we were They were going, probably traveling about 14 knots Wow! for about 20 minutes before we left and have no idea what they were doing, but it was just all of a sudden and every single one, it was totally coordinated and then the t69s were there the next day like in the same exact spot same same spot where we left we're gone we're gone they've they've been up north i think in parksville since then but um just fascinating absolutely and and 
Um, we, we should definitely, um, there are a couple of things I want to go through before we wrap up, but I think, uh, I would love for one of you to talk a little bit about the T2Cs because they, they're such an interesting family. They are, they're, they're really amazing. Um, and as Jeff said, very, very storied. So the T2Cs are, um, Primarily seen really up in Campbell River, kind of is what we assume when we think, or at least what I think of when I think of the T2Cs is up kind of in the northern northern Vancouver Island, central Vancouver Island. Yeah, they seem to be parked there most of the year. Um, But it's a mom uh, and her kiddos, and she has a big boy, Rocky, um, lost a couple of kids in the last couple of years. One we knew very well. Um, A lot of people know him very well. Actually, is an OB shirt. uh, The T2Cs featured on that. Um, But was T2C2 Tumbo. Uh, And Tumbo was really well known because he had scoliosis of the spine. His spine was very, very curved. um, And he had a lot of trouble keeping up with the family that, you know, the family was constantly like kind of getting ahead, they would hunt and then they would wait for him to catch up or they would return back to him. Um, and he lived 15, I think he was 15 when he passed away um, a couple of years ago. Is that right? Yep. 15? And, so. and we, we witnessed countless examples of him just logging at the surface, watching the entire family hunt and they would kill a seal and then they would bring it over to him for, yeah. to pray share. And, and they would, you know, a lot of tactile behavior, too, when that. And they spent a, a quite a bit of time, actually, down in the San Juan Islands in the two years prior to Tumbo's death, um, where they would do that. They would hunt, and then they would go back to him. And it always seemed like when they returned or when they met up again, there was a lot of tactile behavior, whether it was, um, at the time, the youngest calf, T2C4, who was... Uh, no longer living now as well would roll roll over with him and and kind of uh, rub up against him or if it was rocky his older brother uh, it was just really sweet and then there were times when it was you know mom that would be kind of traveling with uh tumbo so it was a really interesting but also kind of lends into this very intelligent social um animal that you know how many animals would you expect to have a, a an you know a family member with that significant um, of a, a set, you know, setback, like to survive that long. Right. Most species would not have, uh, the family care and compassion that that we saw, um, including some human families wouldn't have that. Right. And I, I think, um, you know, when T2C4 was born, there was a, a time when the family was seen and Tumbo wasn't there. And I don't know if you guys remember that, but um, he was seen and uh, or he wasn't seen and, and the family had been seen uh, without him. And I think we all kind of like felt this like clench in our chests, like, oh, you know, not unexpected, but Tumbo is missing. And and then T2C4 was born Um and then Tumba was actually seen with an unrelated family group. I think it was, it was the, the T101s. 101s, yeah. Um, for for a while. And they, I don't know if they were caring for him or what happened there. But, you know, once mom had the baby and the baby was a few months old, then the family was seen all back together again. Way, way to bring bring that full circle yeah, I try. back to I that. Try. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that just like, that's something that really, really fascinates me is like looking at this, like, not just that an animal, um, an individual would survive 15 years with a pretty significant um, condition like that, but also that, an, as far as we know, unrelated family would 
take care of him because he he did need care he he couldn't hunt for himself at least not um you know to the level that he would thrive and it's just fascinating to me yeah that type of compassion and and the social care and, and stuff that you're talking about i think is so important to highlight with the biggest killer whales they they kind of get a bad rap sometimes like people will say oh those are the rogue whales or you know the vicious whales they're vicious they roaming around in gangs and, and stuff yeah, like that you, you hear know? it all the time. boys yeah <laughs> yeah they're, right, Jeff. they're uh, you know, they're killing for sport or they're playing with their food or whatever. And people have this sort of negative connotation with them. But it's important to remember on, on both sides of the coin, you know, the big killer whales still are capable of this incredible social intelligence and compassion. And and on the flip side, the southern residents are are not all benevolent either. You know, we've had them <laughs> on their recent visit um, killing arbor porpoises seemingly for sport, certainly not for food. Right. right. Um, that here, even though they're there are a lot of differences between the two populations. They're both very socially and emotionally intelligent, but they're also both top predators. Yeah. And, you know, their their culture is, while there's a lot of similarities, it's also very, very different from ours. And I think it's important to remember that. Yeah. That is, I, that is so well said. Uh, great, great point. What were you going to say, Sarah? Oh, I was just going to say, I think you witnessed that from, from shore, right? It was J36 Alki who... Um, was at least by the time she got down to Lime Kiln and Land Bank was the kind of the one with the porpoise, but J fifty three Kiki was with with her as well. Yeah, um, yeah. And just a couple weeks prior we had um L one thirteen kill a harbor porpoise as well. So Do you have some photos we can share in the show notes? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sweet. Um and then one last thing with the T two C's because it's not just about Tumbo as much as we love Tumbo and Rest in peace. Um, but they have a history along along this re- or in this region. I guess they were kind of targeted for. They were captured back, gosh, in the sixties, I think, off Victoria. Um, you know, T two and T one, pretty famous whale, Charlie Chin, um, and then T T two, who is T two C's mom, and uh, T four and T three. I think were the other two whales that were captured. T four Chimo. Uh, was a leucistic whale, looked a lot like Toluk, uh, T46B1B, and was displayed at uh, Sealand of the Pacific in Victoria for, I think, a couple years before she passed away. Um, but had Chediak Higashi syndrome, which kind of causes that leucism and but this This was prior to the knowledge of the two different right. populations, right? So we they were later given those designations, T1, T2, but the time they were just killer whales being rounded up for capture and right we didn't know um, who they were yeah and they were they were held for quite some time in in a net pen off victoria and they wouldn't take fish right right (laughs) um and there's a you know there's a pretty dramatic story about that that's recounted in the um ford and ellis book transient killer whales where they uh eventually one of them passed away from from lack of eating i don't remember the details of how long it was i think it was close to two months yeah and um, eventually they, they ended up taking fish in order to survive. Um, and they were, I think they were slated for captivity, but were ultimately, um, released, I think, I think surreptitiously, someone, right? Yeah, like went someone, out in the night at night and cut the net, I think, and T1 and T2 escaped. escaped. Yeah. yeah. And T, one of our boats is named after T2. Yep. And it's funny cause, um, both of those whales, T1 and T2 kind of had some, deformities i guess charlie chin uh you know had that pretty significant overbite underbite 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 yeah underbite. And, and 
chemo as well with the, the you know, yeah. So and the the family group definitely has some, you know, genetic disease and <laughs> conditions going on, which it's, you know, interesting that then T2C2 was in that family group as well with the spinal deformity. Well, and T2 uh, was called pointed nose cow because her rostrum was, I don't know, more pointed than normal. I'll have to see if I can find some old photos of them. That'd be great if we could, we could, and we'll, we'll post some photos of, of Tumbo as well. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And a lot, we're gonna have lots of photos and, and uh, video in the show notes, as well as uh, maybe some of the, the graphs from uh, Orca Behavior Institute on some of the trends in, in presence of the big killer whales versus southern resident killer whales. Yeah. And I, I think it's really interesting, just real quick, like we were talking about, as we we're talking about the T2Cs, it kind of draws this in where we're talking about like the social dynamics and how it seems a little bit more... Um, fluid and there might be some trends within match lines, but not within a, the larger population is uh, we have noticed, or at least, and it's totally anecdotal and totally, you know, our own observations um, and very limited in scope, but um, how sometimes habitat usage seems to shift uh, in the year or years before a death. Uh, so like with the T2Cs, since Tumbo's died, we really haven't seen them down here a lot, maybe once a year, um, though we did see them this year down here and it was great. And we saw them once last year. Some and of you saw them. Sorry, sorry, Monica. <laughs> <laughs> but brief, like you said, a Very short brief. visit. Yeah. It's just a pass through. Whereas like the two years before Tembo died, they were down here quite, quite a significant quite a amount. Um, those two years, uh, the other family that comes to mind that was actually associated with the T2Cs, uh, in that story was the T101s. Uh, so T102 passed away, um, I think two years ago now. And they were down here a lot um, and then kind of shifted up into like how sound they were there almost every day for a while. And I, we really haven't seen them a whole lot since he passed away. I'm, I'm okay with them not being seen down here. They were, <laughs> I, I always had tough trips with them. Every time they're, they were just, they're one of those groups. Every time I would see them, they were, they were just very sleepy. But a, but a mom and three adult sons it was always it was an very impressive, impressive sight. Yeah, very, I always thought impressive. they were so impressive. Very impressive. But, but you're right. after like five minutes, I'm like, all right, let's go do something else. That's, that's how we know are. you're really spoiled. They're just yeah, very right? efficient whales. They just swim through the water with their mouths open and seals swim into them. But I, I've seen, I mean, I've seen photos from other people's tours and it's like, they're, I mean, they're very impressive whales. But when I'm, when I would see them, they were very spread out doing really long dives. I've never seen them. Like in, in even tightly grouped. No, it's true. I'm with you. I, I mean, all the years I've been out here, I think I saw T101 spy hop once. And that was after a harbor seal hunt. And that was the only time I've ever seen them do anything. Otherwise, they were always like just cruising long downtimes. But and we, we are still spoiled. appreciate that. We are spoiled because of, of how much we get to see. And uh, speaking of being spoiled with incredible whales, you have a workshop coming up. <laughs> Well, nice segue into that there. Uh, yeah, we are doing a workshop. Um, we're changing up the format a little bit. We used to do some multi-day uh, workshops, but in September on the 16th and 17th, uh, Friday and Saturday, um, two full-day workshops. Basically, you can sign up for one day. You can sign up for both days. Um, we're going to include some whale ID information, photography, um, assistance from myself and from Lee, who works with us, Lee Andelson. And we're just going to go out and spend the whole day on the water and see what we can find. That sounds sounds awesome. Um, awesome. How can people sign up for this? 
Uh, you can reach out through Instagram to us. Uh, myself, Hisazu, we'll, we'll link in the show notes, but uh, or to After the Breach as well. And I think it's going to run five seventy nine. Uh, we'll have some catered lunch, and it'll be really delicious and, and a lot of fun. Awesome. Yeah, and we'll put, post some more information in, in the show notes. And just want to thank people who have emailed us. Uh, we've gotten some great feedback on, on from people on about some of our prior episodes. Uh, so keep that coming. Uh, you can email us at afterthebreachpodcast at gmail.com. And please like us, follow us, uh, leave us feedback uh, on iTunes or any, any of the places where you're, you're catching these podcasts. And uh, any last, last thoughts? <laughs> no, I think we've had enough awkward pauses uh, to last as a whole episode at least. But uh, Monica, thanks for joining us again. And, um, you know, you're going to come back on. I, I'm just going to make you do it. Yeah, so hope you've had a good time. You're, oh, yeah. you're always welcome on here. And there's always going to be a lot more to talk about with both of these populations of, of killer whales and, and other species of whales as well. Yeah, absolutely. It's that, as you said, it's always ever changing out here. There are always new things to talk about. And I love uh, sitting here talking to both of you about whales. Hopefully other people uh, enjoy these conversations as well. They're always so fascinating. Thank, thanks, Monica. And yeah, everybody who's listening, let us know your thoughts, feedback, comments, questions. Future topics you'd like to hear on the podcast, feel free to let us know. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>